Lord, we come to you now and we thank you for this time uh, as we read uh, some text that has been breathed out by you through Moses in Exodus. I pray that you would give us insight and wisdom and understanding that we would otherwise not have. I pray that as we look at a lot of different laws, that you would give us clarity in what it is you're communicating through those laws about yourself and about your people. I pray that we would not get confused because of the differences in contexts, that ultimately this would be a time of worship for your glory. We love you and praise you. We thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're at the base of Mount Sinai with Israel right now. They've just received the Ten Commandments. They'll be there for a year. We'll be there for a year. And uh, this is the part after the Ten Commandments are given. And so um, there may be a tendency in each of us to sort of skip over it, um, treat it as less important, but that's not the case as we've talked about the last couple weeks. Last week, God blessed us with insight into how grace um, plays into the law and how it actually leads us to the law. And it's not that in the Old Testament there was the law and then way later on God decided to go ahead and do the grace thing because the law was too hard. That's not how it works at all. That's a misconception. And we've seen that in the text. We also saw um, that God has blessed us with a rich connection between the eternal servant and Jesus. So a couple of questions to get back into it this week. What does the altar have to do with grace? Remember, right after the law is given, there's an altar. What does that have to do with grace? Yes, they were sinners. Yeah, it shows that it was never God's intention that they would achieve their own salvation through adherence to the law. If that was the case, there would be no purpose for an altar. Their altar is there because they're sinners, and they will need to bring a sacrifice so that they can come before God. So it's a sign of grace uh, that there's an altar at all. It's there because of sin, and God never intended uh, that Israel would achieve their salvation um, through that. What did we learn about Jesus from the slave forever? The eternal servant. That's who he is. And, and what, did, what are some of the details that we saw in that, um, in that part of the Scripture that showed us more about Jesus, maybe? What happened to that slave? Why, would that, why did that slave decide to be a slave forever? Yes, and so what would he do then? What would the master do when the slave um, said such a thing? Yeah, where? <laughs> you said, I said, where? You said here. <laughs> yeah, on the doorpost. He'd put his ear on the doorpost, take an all, and punch a hole in it. And so what we saw was that um, Jesus serves eternally. That was one of the truths that we gleaned from that. That tells us that Jesus doesn't only serve when there's a need. Generally, that's how we express service in the church, where it's, I will serve where there's a need. But what we see with Jesus here is that he serves eternally. And in Luke 12, 37, there's a picture of um, believers being ready when Jesus comes back. And when he comes back, he sets a table for those believers and dresses like a servant and serves them when there's no need um, for them to be served. He, he's doing it out of love for 
his master, love for his bride, and love for his children. So he meets needs uh, in love, but he also goes beyond the need thing to serving um, because of love. The structure of our study tonight is going to be a little bit different. Usually I'll read through the text, and then we'll go back and hit it one little piece at a time and see how far we get. The structure is going to be different um, for the reason that I, the style of the biblical text is a little bit different tonight as we get into the, the following verses. We're going to take it one small piece at a time and try to consider some overarching truths. So we're going to look at the specifics and we're going to try to glean what is it that God wants us to see in our context as an overarching truth. The reason for this is I do not believe that it is God's design for us to figure out how to specifically apply rules about livestock and slaves in our life as it is right now. I don't think God needs us, intends for us in the reading of this to pay close attention to what to do with our oxen because we don't have oxen. And so there's going to be things that we, we need to see from this, but um, our context is very, very different. Uh, he is undoubtedly speaking to us through this passage, but with our context being different, we don't just say, okay, how can I apply this thing about the oxen goring someone? Um, th- th- we're going to have to go beyond that. I don't want us to get caught up in trying to apply things that God doesn't intend for us to apply in our current context. However, there is application. So, uh, Before we get into the text, I want to ask two questions to help us handle context rightly. So the first question is, what is Israel's context? I mentioned it earlier, but what's their context? What are some details? Just came out of 400 years of slavery. (coughs) Based on Mount Sinai. scared. Yeah, they're very fearful. The ground is shaking, peals of thunder and lightning, smoke. They say, okay, Moses, we'll hear from you. Why don't you be a mediator and go uh, and talk to God, hear from God directly because it terrifies us. And God says that's fitting that there would be a mediator, allows Moses to do such a thing. What else? um, What is our context here? And then we'll ask how they differ. As you sit here, How does your context differ from that context? And I'll give you a hint. You shouldn't really have to search real deep to see the differences. It's pretty significant. You've never been in slavery. That's a big one. In that, with an Egyptian. Yeah. Yeah. And what else? (laughs) What else? Say that again. We're not in Mount Sinai. We're in Hunt County. There are similarities, but there are also differences. Oppressive terrain. <laughs> um, what else? What's another difference between our context and theirs? Yes, they're seeing evidence of him in a tangible way that maybe we have not seen. We, we have not, the thunder and the lightning being God, um, it would be different than the thunder and lightning we've experienced in the last 24 hours. How else is our context different? Yeah, yes. Yeah, we have, uh, they do have salvation, but um, we are on the this side of the advent, and they're on the other side of the advent. 
What are some other differences between our context and theirs? Yeah, our mediator is Christ. Theirs was Moses. Moses was a type to help us understand more fully uh, who Christ is and, and would be. We live in a city. We have laws and we have judges. We live in a country that had a real problem with racism and slavery. We have trade and commerce that allows for jobs, whereas they were a um, desert-dwelling, um, sojourning people at the time. Uh, we have a lot of things in the way of heritage and sort of the way we do things that they don't have. God's establishing them in their new freedoms. Uh, when I first came to Crosspoint, um, uh, one of the sweet and wonderful ladies that I got to work with was named Ruth Hardy. Some of y'all might know her. She's absolutely wonderful, and I miss her. Um, and she, we, we would, it seemed, it seemed like every day I was saying, now why do we do it like that? I, I was asking questions about the way things were going. And, and she would always say, well, it's just the way we've always done it. And Okay, now one more time, can you explain to me why we do it like that? Just the way we've always done it. And there was one day I was like, Ruth, we can't give that answer anymore. The way we've always done it will not suffice. And so a lot of us here in this, we do things the way we do things because it's the way we've always done it. It's what we know. It's what my granddaddy did. It's what my daddy did. It's what my granddaddy said. It's what my daddy said. And it's what I do. And it was a little different for them because most of them were, uh, all of them, in fact, were born into a very oppressive slavery and are now freed from that. So the context that they're in is very, very different from the context that we're in, which is important. Because, look at verse 7. This is God. Now, this is God speaking to his people to establish them in their new freedom. When you, if you read through these verses and you're like, man, this is a disconnected mess. You're talking about God. If you read through these verses and you think, this makes no sense. This is jibber-jabber. You're talking about God. So, it's important for us to remember as I read these verses that God, the one who is absolutely infinite in wisdom, who is lacking in absolutely nothing, who loves us perfectly, is giving these rules to his people so they'll know how to live in a way that glorifies him. That's who's speaking. That's what he's speaking of. And we come to verse 7, and it says, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, and we have to stop. Because we got some serious baggage. Uh, that, I mean, we're, we're diving off into a section of Scripture where we see when things happen and what God wants um, in the way of restitution and response and responsibility. And the, uh, the first verse is when a man sells his daughter as a slave. What is difficult about this verse? What are some questions that jump into your mind when you read when a man sells his daughter as a slave? What you talking about, Willis? It, it, it is one of those moments. Why would a man sell his daughter as a slave? Uh, are there any other questions that come up? That that sort of sums it up. Yeah, our view of slavery is immoral, oppressive, racism, injustice. I mean, everything that we as Americans know about slavery is largely negative, which we talked about last week. So when you think slave in these verses, think servant. And when you think servant in these verses, think worker, not necessarily someone who's oppressed and beaten and things like that. So um, the questions that jump into my mind is why would God allow such a thing? He's giving them the rules that he wants them to live by. It's almost like saying, when you steal your friend's car, well, stop. Stop right there. 
Why would that be okay? Is he giving approval to such a thing? Why is he saying this? So, um, the first thing is, why would God allow such a thing? That's the kind of question that would jump into my mind. Is he being inconsistent? Because would it be consistent for God to redeem his people out of slavery only to allow Israelite fathers to sell their daughters back into it? Is this, isn't human trafficking an injustice? I, saw, I watched Taken the other night where Liam Neeson just destroys everybody who gets in his way. Um, human trafficking is, is a very, very, very real and horrible problem that we should care about, that, that we should care about the injustice that's going on. Is God saying it's okay to sell your daughters into slavery? What's going on here? I'm making such a point of this because we're about to step off into a whole bunch of things like this, and I don't want us to have misconceptions about our God. He's perfectly just, righteous in every way, not immoral, not thoughtless, not careless. He's showing his people how to live. So we need to peel back some of the misconceptions so that we can have a right understanding of this verse. It's important. Oh, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Yeah, there, there are so many dynamics, and there are cultural things, and as Americans, we, we can be really, really arrogant in our view of our cultural dynamics as they differ to others. I mean, I just walk through another airport, and I'm like, stupid, bad idea, what are they doing there? That's a dumb picture. It's like I just become arrogant, and it's, it's very American of me. Um, it's important that we don't misunderstand God. This is not what he's doing. This is not what he's saying. He's not approving selling daughters into oppressive slavery. He's not approving human trafficking. He's not approving the oppression and immorality that goes along with those things in our mind. Um, remember, God is establishing Israel in their new freedom. He is not leading them into a new kind of oppression. So let's read the rest of the section and see if we can't gain some insight taking those things into account. Verses 7 through 11 When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. It's different. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself... He shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Now, this can be very confusing. I just want to rip it apart a little bit. Israel's job market and cultural dynamic in regards to marriage is not at all like our current state. If I was to tell you unmarried young ladies it's, it's a good idea for your dad to choose who you're going to marry. I would receive 
probably a little bit of pushback on that. Um, if I was to say uh, arranged marriage is probably going to work out best in the long run, y- y'all would probably say you've lost your mind and I'm looking for a new church home right now. Um, what the state they're in is not at all like the state we're in. Uh, C.S. Lewis encourages us to guard against chronological snobbery. So I've already encouraged you to guard against American snobbery and cultural snobbery, and he encourages us to guard against chronological snobbery. We've talked about it before. Essentially, this means that we aren't narrow-minded in our perspective. We guard against the arrogance or snobbery of saying that the way that we do things and are doing things is the best way ever simply because it is the way we're doing them now. That is chronological snobbery. In these days in our text, the way of life was arranged marriages. That's how things went. Um, We have a problem with this, uh, usually. Um, We saw it with Isaac and Rebecca, I guess a couple years back, a few years back, two, three, however many years back, we did a lot, uh, I think it was like an eight-part study on Isaac and Rebecca. And we saw that these arranged marriages would include things like dowry and bride price, which I'm sure y'all, that sounds oppressive, Um, and things that make little sense to us in our context here in Hunt County, America. So for a moment, I would like to consider some things that we learned in Genesis 24. There were some things that we learned in Genesis 24 that we kind of need to import here so we don't start off on the wrong foot, totally misunderstanding what God is saying. The first thing is about arranged marriage. Arranged marriage is not something, and I'm going to go through this quickly, so uh, turn your ears on, whatever teachers say, put your thinking cap on, we're going to go through this quickly. Arranged marriage is not something that's always against the will of the sons and daughters involved. The movies would portray it as the princess always want. The princess is supposed to marry the prince, but she really loves the stable boy, and it just—it's such a nightmare because she can't choose who she really wants to love. That's how the movies do it. Rather, an arranged marriage was a means by which discerning heads of household would do all they could to keep their households rightly intact and their heritage from being blemished. That was what arranged marriages were. It wasn't. We're going to oppress the women and not let them talk to the stable boy. It had nothing to do with that. It had to do with a father and a mother saying, no, I'm not okay with you marrying a Canaanite merely on the grounds that you think she is hot. I'm not okay with you bringing pagan polytheistic worship into our home. No, I'm not okay with exposing our family to a godless way of living that our forefathers have gone to great lengths to protect against. It's a father saying, I want to be familiar with the values and character of your spouse's family. Because in marriage, our family is not divided. In marriage, by God's design, our family is multiplied. It's not divided. Some of y'all haven't experienced that. Some of y'all experience, well, I've seen marriage just divide families. What God is showing us here is that Originally, it's, it's meant to multiply families, and no one wants to multiply something wicked or unhealthy or poisonous. We want to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth in a way conducive to our created purpose, to glorify God. That's what we're talking about when we say arranged marriage, biblically. A dowry. A dowry is not the price that a father pays to a young man to take his daughter off of his hands, And it is not the price that a father would pay to a young man to gain a social standing or political status. If that was the purpose, then there would be a competition between grooms to earn a richer bride, and it would make everything about marriage completely social. 
Rather, when we see it in Scripture, dowry was not actually paid by the bride's father to the groom, but rather it was paid by the bride's family to the groom's family. Now, we're talking about things that are largely unfamiliar, so try to climb into the context and and see when you hear dowry, it just sounds old-fashioned and weird and possibly oppressive and confusing. It's something that a bride's family would pay to a groom's family. And again, it's all about the family. It's the bride's father saying, I want you and our family, our family now, to flourish and be taken care of. The point is that the dowry existed for the taking care of the family with a view towards future generations and heritage. Bride price. That's probably one of the worst ones. Bride price. That sounds horrible. Bride price. You can't put a price on a bride. She's beautiful. Bride price is not the price that a young man pays to a young lady's father so that he might purchase a nice young bride. The brides are not livestock. Rather, the bride price in this context was paid by the groom's family to the bride's family as a goodwill gesture of wanting to offset the loss that the family will experience by the daughter moving out. In those times, a son or a daughter was more than just a deadbeat who sat around on the sofa eating mom and dad's food that mom and dad paid for. That was not the design. A young woman played an important role in the home. Do y'all remember what Rebecca was doing when the servant Eleazar found her? Drawing water for the camels, okay? How much, how much water do camels drink? Do y'all remember that? A bunch, that's exactly right. And so she drew a bunch of water. She was, she was already doing that when Eleazar, the servant, was going to try to find a, a bride for Isaac. And so he comes upon the well, and she's already serving people. She's already doing things to be helpful to the family. And so what we're seeing here is that the groom's family would see the importance of, what the, of the daughter in her family. And he would offer up a sum of goods and money to validate her worth, not invalidate it. If this was a transaction, it'd be like, well, whatever goods you offer up, it's, it's fleeting and, and falls short of her worth, so it's, it's offensive. Well, this isn't a transaction. This is a goodwill offering to try to validate worth, not invalidate it. So those are terms. We just blew through them quickly. Um, if you want to look more at this and, and you're thinking, okay, maybe Scott's lost his mind, go back online. We've got all of the Wednesday night studies. You can click on all of them, listen to all of them, and see some more in-depth details there. But the context I'm getting at is very different than ours. If I mentioned bride price or dowry or anything, people would think I was crazy in our current context. Um, I have two daughters. I have every intention of arranging their marriages. They just won't know it. I'm going to move stealthily and try to make it work. So take these realities into account and see that in verses 7 through 11, see them through the right lens. In verses 7 through 11, we're talking about a circumstance when a family was too poor to afford a dowry. A family was too, too poor to afford uh, a wedding and a marriage. The daughter was not to go out as male slaves do. It was supposed to be different. There's provision made for her. And if it doesn't work out, then the master is to allow her to be redeemed. So the intention is marriage. If things can't be afforded, they go about it a different way but there are protections given throughout the process to make sure that the bride is not exploited, mistreated, or oppressed. So this is actually very loving. And a first read-through, I had to read this like 20 times to work through it. 
because it just looks crazy to me, and I know that God's not crazy. I am. He is not. So when I look at this, I'm seeing provision made for this bride to take care of her. So if it doesn't work out with the master, he is to allow her to be redeemed. The word redeemed in the original language is pada, and indicates an intervening or substitutionary action to effect a release from an undesirable condition. And it's sometimes referred to as redemption money. So, there is a provision for the daughter. Should the conditions and the relational dynamics be undesirable, she could go back to her family. That's what's going on here. God's saying, I know your evil tendencies to make this wicked. And I'm putting things in place to make sure you don't go there. I'm God. This is what I'm saying. This is my, my design for you as a people because I want you to flourish and not flounder and fail and fall into wickedness. <coughs> God is putting things in place to prevent exploitation, not allow it. What we are seeing from God here is a theme that will continue. Our God has always and will always care about justice, the sanctity of human life, and compassion. That's the character of our God. He cares about justice, sanctity of human life, and He is compassionate. The following verses continue the theme. Look at verse 12, and this is where we will hopefully begin to move faster. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. And this is mentioned again later on, and we'll address it again later on. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. One thing briefly, whoever steals a man and sells him shall be put to death. All that we know about human trafficking and slavery in our current day is people stealing people. There is no honest market where someone honestly sells someone and it just goes wrong at some point. It starts off wrong, and it gets more evil as it goes. So the context is different. See the differences in the context along the whole journey. You're not allowed to steal or kill people or dishonor your parents. It misrepresents our God, and the result shall be death. That is what God is telling his people. It misrepresents who I am. You're not showing compassion. You don't, you're not showing the, the beauty of human life, and, and you're not being loving. So you're misrepresenting my character. That, that's what God is saying through this. To be taken from the altar is to be removed from grace. Remember, the altar is the place where you go because of your sin, and it's a sign of grace that you may be with God. And he's saying, if someone does that, take them from my altar that they may die. Look at verses 18 through 19. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist. Now, again, make sure you read that rightly. God's not saying, I approve of men quarreling and striking each other with rocks and fists. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, when this happens, because I know it will, you're a fallen people that are being redeemed. He's wanting to say, this is what is going to take place because of that fault. He's addressing a fault here. So, he says, when men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed... Then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. 
only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. Now, this is interesting. Again, God's not making allowance for fighting. Rather, he is requir- he's requiring reconciliation and making things right when we do. It's interesting to me that he doesn't say, now if the guy deserved it, oh well. But if he didn't deserve it, then you've got to make things right. God's saying if you guys fought and you struck each other and the result was one of them losing, like spending, it'd be like saying you spent two days in the hospital and you weren't able to work, then whoever struck him is going to have to pay for that. That's what God's saying. He's saying that's how my society is going to, to function. The, the kingdom, God's kingdom on earth, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's how I want it to look. Look at verse 20. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. We'll talk about this more later, but there's something in Scripture called the avenger of blood, and it's the closest family member who is responsible to make things right should someone be wronged. I would say it would probably be the overprotective father or the big brother. That's just what I would assume. And what it is, is the avenger of blood says, I will avenge my family member by taking your life. And they take it into their hands to do that. And that's the need for those cities where people can flee to until the judge can, can judge the situation and make it right. So it's, okay, someone died in this struggle. You go to this city over here, a city of refuge, until it can be judged in a, in a, in a just manner because there's something called the avenger of blood. So God is not giving approval to the striking of slaves. Rather, he's setting things in place to discourage such treatment. What God has said here discourages such treatment. There will be servants, but he's not giving approval to striking them with a rod. He's saying if that happens, he's discouraging it by the law that he puts in place. Look at verses 22 through 25. This is a big section here. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children, it can be children or child, it says children to include in case there are multiple children in the woman's womb. And hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. So you see this process, this sort of legal process begin to take shape here, being birthed from the time when, when Moses met with Jethro and they put the judges in place, we're seeing God saying, yeah, that's my design and I want you to see how to use it. It goes on to say, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now, These verses have some very deep-seated implications in regards to abortion and the sanctity of life. Verse 23 uses the phrase, life for life. You see that in verse 23? It says, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life. What does this imply? The baby in the womb is considered life. Someone else have something different form of that? Life for life implies that the child who came out of the pregnant mother 
because of the, the scuffle between the two men. I mean, picture the situation. There's two guys. They're struggling. There's a pregnant mom sitting right here, and something happens, and they go, and they hit her, and something happens to where she goes into labor, and at some point, she has to birth the children earlier than was the original design because of the fight. Now, life for life is a big implication. Um, it implies that the child or the children from the, room, from the womb were life. What does this equate the act to? Murder. This is the Bible. I am not a politician trying to argue and you know, position myself on a point. It says life for life. This is saying the child in that womb. He doesn't say, if she was you know, a few months along, that's too bad. If she was further along, it's more serious. Just as if she has a child in her womb. That's all it says. Life for life would imply the taking of life. It's equating the act to murder. And on top of this, God is expressing that it is in accordance with His will that restitution be in a right measure. God's about justice. Do you see where it says eye for eye, tooth for tooth, wound for wound, stripe for stripe? Those aren't necessarily literal. Some would argue that they're totally only literal. But I believe it indicates that when paying for losses, it's not just to overpay or to underpay or to have someone overpay or to underpay. Remember that um, justice is a form of equality, and it would be up to the judges to determine that particular amount. So in this situation, the, the father of the child, the husband of the wife would say, this man caused this problem, and he would bring that charge, and then it, was, it would be the judges who would decide what the payment is. What, what, is, what is just? What is right? What is a, a, a right amount of restitution here? How do we apply eye for eye, tooth for tooth, wound for wound, stripe for stripe, hand to hand? How do we apply this in the everyday life of people having altercations and horrible circumstances actually occurring? There used to be some English laws at one time that said if you killed a man's sheep, you were to be hanged. Is that a right response to what God has put forth in these verses? Well, no. Why? Yeah, a man's life is more valuable than a sheep's life. There's an imbalance there. It's sort of our overreaction where it's like, um, I heard someone talking about... uh, someone breaking into their car. And it's like they wanted to catch him because they thought they'd be back. I said, so what are you going to do if you catch him? Well, I'm going to shoot him and kill him. Really? Why? And I wanted to talk through it because I cared about the person. I wanted to say, well, why, why do you jump to that conclusion? I, I know someone who uh, their pet was poisoned and killed. I said, well, I want to find the person that I'm going to poison him and kill him. Okay, well, let's think through that and be sober. I hate what happened, but that's not a right response. That's not balanced. That's not just. That's called an overreaction. Now, this is an imbalance, and it's not seen as justice in the eyes of God. And this is often why it is necessary and good and orderly to have a sober-minded and fair judge who can help individuals and families work through such difficult dynamics. And that shows us all the more reason to have good judges who can be sober-minded and impartial and be able to really judge according to the circumstance. Because if I'm a dad and a husband and my wife gets struck because two guys were being boneheads and, our, and we lose our baby, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to want to probably kill them both, to be honest. 
So to have a sober-minded judge who can help with this and to have laws in place to keep, from, to keep it from being, to keep overreactions from being okay. Everybody would understand someone who's upset and wants to, to get even. Everyone understands that because we're all sinners. But we can't have a society or a culture that functions like that. God's not saying, yeah, I'll wink at that sin. No, He doesn't wink at sin. So there has to be order and structure here. Look at verses 26 through 27. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go because of his tooth. Now, this is getting even more detailed, isn't it? It seems like God is saying, probably best not to be striking him. That's what it seems like to me. I don't want to read anything into the text, but God is expressing it'd be best not to strike your servants, at least in this manner. And not to get too graphic, it's not all that hard to knock out a tooth. I mean, I've got three little brothers. I don't know how many times, oh, knock his tooth out. It's not hard. It's not difficult to knock out someone's tooth. Um, sorry, I just had like five stories jump into my head about knocking out my brother's teeth. We are on the trampoline. We are doing karate wars. And I caught him with a roundhouse. Two of them would. Um, it was not hard to knock out teeth. If such carelessness was exercised toward a servant, the result would be the freedom of that servant. Do you see that God is saying it's important that you are careful in the way that you treat them? In my mind, it's hard for me to get this because when I read that verse, I thought, if I was an oppressed servant under that law, and I, I hated being a, a slave, then I would provoke my master, and when he went to hit me, I would just offer him my teeth. I would be willing to give up all of my teeth for my freedom if it was so bad. The point is, is the, the situation isn't that bad. The circumstance is not so negative that a slave would be like, man, I just wish I'd get a tooth knocked out. It's saying, you be careful in the way that you treat them. Look at verse 28. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. I'll be honest, I think of pit bulls when I read this. I hate them. I know some, someone in here is probably a pit bull lover. I can't believe he said that. Um, uh, anyway, we're talking about ox here, okay? So just stick to the story. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in and kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter... He shall be dealt with according to the same rule. If the ox scores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned. Uh, on the, the path that I run on, there's this one dog and there's a hole in the fence, a huge hole in the fence that's clearly been patched like 10 times. At this point, the hole in the fence has railroad ties in front of it and steel mesh, and all this stuff. I'm like, man, that dog wants to get out of that fence. And there's one night I'm running along, and all of a sudden I hear the barking. I'm like, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, whoa, that barking's closer. 
And I do this, and it's right here. And I do the, like this, and that dog was on a chain that kept it about a foot from me. Because I'm like, I just wanted to knock on, I was running like 10 o'clock at night. So I do this, and the dog does the, like a cartoon, like, you know, and comes, you know, ripping back because the chain. And I was like, whoa, no way. Like, I thought I was a goner. And because it, it was dark, and it was, it was on me. I was like, oh, man. That owner knew that that ox dog was accustomed <laughs> to getting out of that yard. And... If I'm out and like a dog were to attack me or something, yeah, I'd like to know who the owner was, warn them, you know, if, if I had to go to the hospital or something, can, can we pay for it? But if I knew that there was that dog from that fence, I mean, it was on a chain, cause, so he knew if the railroad ties and steel mesh fail, as they did, at least the chain might be a last source of safety for the poor runner who can't run fast, uh, faster than the the ox dog. And so, um, I would, I, there would be a certain level of, you, he couldn't say, I didn't, know the, I didn't know the dog got out. I didn't know the dog was accustomed to getting out and doing that. It's like, no, no, no. Clearly, you knew the dog was accustomed to it. Here, that's what they're talking about with the ox. Um, I think it's clear that God, in establishing Israel in their new freedom, is expressing the importance of responsibility. God's being clear in this. I don't think he's being subtle at all. Every point he's made so far and every point he will make in the following verses, God is expressing the need for responsibility. Our responsibility will come in the form of obedience to and worship of our God. The title of tonight's little lesson is Invasive God. God's being invasive. He's like, I, I have a desire and a purpose and a will for the way you care for others, the way you treat your animals, um, He's being very invasive, making the point that his will for your life is not limited to vague and broad application, but that he intends to direct and form and invade the way you deal with your differences with others, the way you deal with your pursuit of justice, your fight against injustice, your use of personal property, your treatment of your employees, your treatment of your parents, your regard and responsibility in your treatment of livestock and pets, and even your response when you have accidentally wronged another. God's saying you are to be a responsible person. God's influence has always and will always aim to invade every relationship and every endeavor. He's being very specific here on purpose. He wants to inform Every circumstance, he doesn't want his people to be a lazy, uninformed, um, irresponsible people. He's saying, no, 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 you need to do what's right when it's right. And I'll give you clarity on that as I give you these rules and these laws for you to abide by. Look at verses 33 through 36. When a man opens a pit, so taking all that into account that God cares about responsibility, let's read the rest of this. When a man opens a pit... Or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. God's saying, it's not okay for you to dig a pit and be irresponsible. If someone's animal falls into it, you can keep the animal, but pay him for it. Let's be reasonable. He's a very reasonable God. When one man's ox butts another's so that it dies... Thus shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. 
I love that God's response to this problem is, I'm going to make y'all work together on a solution. We're going to learn a little community. You're going to share the dead ox and the live ox because you let your ox butt his ox and you allow your ox to be butted by his ox. So y'all are going to work together on this and come up with a solution. I do that with my kids all the time. The dead beasts shall also, they shall share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox and the dead beast shall be his. God cares about the fairness of the way they work through these details. Now look at verses 22 through 1 through 4. This continues the theme of God's intentions to direct every action. Every action. If a man steals an ox or sheep, now God's not saying it's okay to steal ox and sheep, just do it this way. He's saying if this happens, which is wrong, there's going to be something that you have to do. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. I don't know why it's five and one, four and the other, but he's way wiser than I am. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. That means someone's breaking in and you strike him. They didn't have guns back then. But if you strike him and he dies, hey, he should not have done that. There's no blood guilt. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it's an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. This continues the theme of God's intentions to direct every action. And God here is protecting the rights of homeowners and limiting their response to something reasonable should they be on the receiving end of injustice. He's saying if it's dark and something happens, yeah, um, that is bad that he got killed in your house by you defending, but that's what happened. But it's, if it's daylight, it's different. Um, there's room for ID. Uh, there's room for judgment. Uh, but there's protection of the rights of the homeowner. I mean, th- these are details we still discuss today on what's right, what's wrong, what's too much. God's doing the same thing here. Look at verses 5 through 15. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the beast, uh, from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. So, oh, my cow got out and ate everything in your field. Today, men would probably be inclined to say, it's not my fault. I'm not a cow. It's like the cow is mine of its own. And we, we, try, we try to skirt responsibility. God's saying, no, do what's right. If, if they ate all this field, you take your field and let his cows eat. That's what's right. Don't skirt your responsibility. If a fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. I didn't mean to. Well, you did, and it's a problem, and you need to be responsible for what you did. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe, and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. So that's saying, you give me your Rolex to watch while you're out of town, and someone breaks into my house and steals your Rolex, we find that guy, he owes you two Rolexes. Why it's Rolexes, I have no idea. The Bible's strange like that. If the thief is not found, then the owner of the house shall come near to God and show whether or not he's put his hand to his neighbor's property. So this is a picture of them going to God, and God 
by some manner, making it clear if the owner of the house is being honest or not. Some believe, some commentators and smart theologians, much smarter than myself, believe that this is the men going to the judges so that they can show the wisdom as God has given it to them. Some believe they're actually going to God and saying, show us. And some, by some manner, God could reveal to them uh, uh, to make sure who is being honest and who isn't being honest. For every breach of trust, whether it's for an ox or a donkey, for sheep or a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing of which one says this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to the neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath and he shall not make restitution. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it's torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. If a man borrows anything of his neighbors and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. So if I borrow your ox and it dies and you're not there, I got, I'm responsible for the ox. It died while I had it. But if the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, if I didn't borrow it, but I hired, I paid you to use it, then uh, it came for its hiring fee. This is still God talking. He's talking about the hiring fee of an ox to do work. He cares about the specifics. He cares about the details of the way you live. Look at verse 16. We shift in focus to God's design for social justice and how we treat others. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. Again, God's not saying that's okay. He's saying if this happens, this is, this is what he sees as the right response. If her father utterly refuses, which is the right of the father, to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. That was pretty straightforward. Whoever lies with animal shall be put to death. It's pretty straightforward too. Whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. God's getting to the point of you worship me and you worship me only. You, the lying of animal, lying with animals, that's something that pagan cultures would do and cults would do in some of their cult worship. It's not right. And he says, you shall be put to death. Verse 20, uh, verse 21, you shall not um, wrong a sojourner or oppress him. And look, look at what God does here, here towards the end. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall be become widows and your children become fatherless. This goes even further. What God's doing in sharing his laws and his purposes is he's reminding them and telling the Israelites that their experience in Egypt is to inform the way they treat sojourners. Saying one of the reasons you were in Egypt is so that you will know how to treat sojourners. When people traveling the earth come across my people, they should, they should see a distinct difference in the way they're treated. You should treat people differently, and it should reflect my character. Don't just keep the rules. 
embody the character of God and communicate God's goodness. 25 through 27 says, if you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, we don't even do that. We don't lend money to poor people. It's not a safe investment. Don't lend money to poor people. It's a horrible business model. Don't do that. This says, if you lend money to any of my people with, uh, with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is the only covering, his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. This is saying, lend to help people. This is a crazy concept for Americans. Lend to help people. Do not lend to oppress people. And when lending to the poor, a secured loan is sufficient, but an interest-bearing loan is not. God is compassionate. And in verses 28 through 31, it says, you shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother, and on the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. Allegiance to God will result in scrupulous attention to one's actions. We're not just God followers and God fearers who only give thought to God for a few hours a week. If we are God followers, it causes us to give particular detailed attention to every one of our actions. We will take every form of responsibility seriously with a particular aim at putting the glory of God on display by exhibiting His compassionate and just character. I can't believe we got through both of those chapters. Praise God. Let's pray. Lord, You are great and greatly to be praised, and I hope we can see it in a new uh, measure tonight um, as You show us how compassionate, how loving, and how perfectly just You are. If there's any confusion tonight, if we're getting wrapped up in, in distinctives that are very different from our context, um, my prayer, Lord, is that you would give understanding and wisdom where it's needed. Um, I pray that you would allow us to, you know, anything worth listening to is worth thinking about. And so as we think about these things, I pray that you would give us understanding and clarity so that we can know who you are more clearly and respond appropriately uh, according to your will. Uh, thank you for being compassionate. Thank you for being a God who is not like other gods. I'm thankful that there is none who gives you counsel. But tonight, we go to your word and we receive counsel abundantly. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.